Chapter One of the Oregon Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter One The Frontier. Last spring, eighteen forty six, was a busy season in the city of St. Louis. Not only were the emigrants from every part of the country preparing for the journey to Oregon and California, but an unusual number of traders were making ready their wagons and outfits for Santa Fe. Many of the emigrants, especially of those bound for California, were persons of wealth and standing. The hotels were crowded, and the gunsmiths and saddlers were kept constantly at work in providing arms and equipments for the different parties of travelers. Almost every day steamboats were leaving the levee and passing up the Missouri, crowded with passengers on their way to the frontier. In one of these, the Radnor, since snagged and lost, my friend and relative Quincy A. Shaw and myself left St. Louis on the 28th of April on a tour of curiosity and amusement to the Rocky Mountains. The boat was loaded until the water broke alternately over her guards, her upper deck was covered with large weapons of a peculiar form for the Santa Fe trade, and her hold was crammed with goods for the same destination. There were also the equipments and provisions of a party of Oregon emigrants, a band of mules and horses, piles of saddles and harness, and a multitude of nondescript articles, indispensable on the prairies. Almost hidden in this medley one might have seen a small French cart, of the sort very appropriately called a mule-killer beyond the frontiers, and not far distant a tent, together with a miscellaneous assortment of boxes and barrels. The whole equipage was far from prepossessing in its appearance, yet such as it was, it was destined to a long and arduous journey on which the persevering reader will accompany it. The passengers on board the Radnor corresponded with her freight, in her cabin were Santa Fe traders, gamblers, speculators, and adventurers of various descriptions, and her steerage was crowded with Oregon emigrants, mountain men, negroes, and a party of Kansas Indians who had been on a visit to St. Louis. Thus laden, the boat struggled upward for seven or eight days against the rapid current of the Missouri, grating upon snags and hanging for two or three hours at a time upon sandbars. We entered the mouth of the Missouri in a drizzling rain, but the weather soon became clear and showed distinctly the broad and turbid river with its eddies, its sandbars, its ragged islands and forest-covered shores. The Missouri is constantly changing its course, wearing away its banks on one side while it forms new ones on the other. Its channel is shifting continually. Islands are formed and then washed away and while the old forests on one side are undermined and swept off, a young growth springs up from the new soil upon the other. With all of these changes, the water is so charged with mud and sand that it is perfectly opaque, and in a few minutes deposits a sediment an inch thick on the bottom of a tumbler. The river was now high, but when we descended in the autumn it was fallen very low, and all the secrets of its treacherous shallows were exposed to view. 
It was frightful to see the dead and broken trees, thick-set as a military abatis, firmly embedded in the sand, and all pointing downstream, ready to impale any unhappy steamboat that at high water should pass over that dangerous ground. In five or six days we began to see signs of the great western movement that was then taking place. Parties of emigrants with their tents and wagons would be encamped on open spots near the bank on their way to the common rendezvous at Independence. On a rainy day near sunset we reached the landing of this place, which is situated some miles from the river on the extreme frontier of Missouri. The scene was characteristic, for here were represented at one view the most remarkable features of this wild and enterprising region. On the muddy shore stood some thirty or forty dark, slavish-looking Spaniards, gazing stupidly out from beneath their broad hats. They were attached to one of the Santa Fe companies, whose wagons were crowded together on the banks above. In the midst of these, crouching over a smoldering fire, was a group of Indians, belonging to a remote Mexican tribe. One or two French hunters from the mountains, with their long hair and buckskin dresses, were looking at the boat and seated on a log close at hand were three men with rifles lying across their knees. The foremost of these, a tall, strong figure with a clear blue eye and an open, intelligent face, might very well represent that race of restless and intrepid pioneers whose axes and rifles have opened a path from the Alleghanies to the western prairies. He was on his way to Oregon probably a more congenial field to him than any that now remained on this side the great plains early on the next morning we reached kansas about five hundred miles from the mouth of the missouri here we landed and leaving our equipments in charge of my good friend colonel chick whose log house was the substitute for a tavern we set out in a wagon for westport where we hoped to procure mules and horses for the journey it was a remarkably fresh and beautiful May morning. The rich and luxuriant woods through which the miserable road conducted us were lighted by the bright sunshine and enlivened by a multitude of birds. We overtook on the way our late fellow-travelers, the Kansas Indians, who, adorned with all their finery, were proceeding homeward at a round pace, and whatever they might have seemed on board the boat, they made a very striking and picturesque feature in the forest landscape. Westport was full of Indians, whose little shaggy ponies were tied by dozens along the houses and fences. Sacks and foxes with shaved heads and painted faces, Shawanos and Delawares fluttering in calico frocks and turbans, Wyandots dressed like white men, and a few wretched Kansas wrapped in old blankets were strolling about the streets or lounging in and out of the shops and houses. As I stood at the door of the tavern, I saw a remarkable-looking person coming up the street. He had a ruddy face, garnished with the stumps of a bristly red beard and mustache. On one side of his head was a round cap with a knob at the top, such as Scottish laborers sometimes wear. His coat was of a nondescript form and made of a gray Scotch plaid, with the fringes hanging all about it. He wore pantaloons of coarse homespun and hobnailed shoes, and to complete his equipment a little black pipe was stuck in one corner of his mouth. In this curious attire I recognized Captain C. of the British Army, who, with his brother and Mr. R., an English gentleman, was bound on a hunting expedition across the continent. 
I had seen the captain and his companions at St. Louis. They had now been for some time at Westport making preparations for their departure and waiting for a reinforcement, since they were too few in number to attempt it alone. They might, it is true, have joined some of the parties of emigrants who were on the point of setting out for Oregon and California, but they professed great disinclination to have any connection with the Kentucky fellows. The captain now urged it upon us that we should join forces and proceed to the mountains in company. Feeling no greater partiality for the society of the emigrants than they did, we thought the arrangement an advantageous one and consented to it. Our future fellow travelers had installed themselves in a little log house, where we found them all surrounded by saddles, harness, guns, pistols, telescopes, knives, and in short, their complete appointments for the prairie. R., who professed a taste for natural history, sat at a table stuffing a woodpecker. The brother of the captain, who was an Irishman, was splicing a trail rope on the floor, as he had been an amateur sailor. The captain pointed out with much complacency the different articles of their outfit. "'You see,' said he, "'that we are all old travelers. I am convinced that no party ever went upon the prairie better provided.' The hunter whom they had employed, a surly-looking Canadian named Sorel, and their muleteer, an American from St. Louis, were lounging about the building. In a little log stable close at hand were their horses and mules, selected by the captain, who was an excellent judge. The alliance entered into, we left them to complete their arrangements, while we pushed our own to all convenient speed. The emigrants for whom our friends professed such contempt were encamped on the prairie about eight or ten miles distant, to the number of a thousand or more, and new parties were constantly passing out from independence to join them. They were in great confusion, holding meetings, passing resolutions, and drawing up regulations, but unable to unite in the choice of leaders to conduct them across the prairie. Being at leisure one day, I rode over to Independence. The town was crowded. A multitude of shops had sprung up to furnish the emigrants and Santa Fe traders with necessaries for their journey, and there was an incessant hammering and banging from a dozen blacksmith's sheds, where the heavy wagons were being repaired and the horses and oxen shod. The streets were thronged with men, horses, and mules. While I was in the town, a train of emigrant wagons from Illinois passed through to join the camp on the prairie and stopped in the principal street. A multitude of healthy children's faces were peeping out from under the covers of the wagons, here and there a buxom damsel was seated on horseback, holding over her sunburnt face an old umbrella or a parasol, once gaudy enough, but now miserably faded. The men, very sober-looking countrymen, stood about their oxen, and as I passed I noticed three old fellows who, with their long whips in their hands, were zealously discussing the doctrine of regeneration. The emigrants, however, are not all of this stamp, among them are some of the vilest outcasts in the country. I have often perplexed myself to divine the various motives that give impulse to this strange migration, but whatever they may be, whether an insane hope of a better condition in life or a desire of shaking off restraints of law and society, or mere restlessness, certain it is that multitudes bitterly repent the journey and after they have reached the land of promise, are happy enough to escape from it. In the course of seven or eight days we had brought our preparations near a close. 
Meanwhile our friends had completed theirs, and becoming tired of Westport, they told us that they would set out in advance and wait at the crossing of the Kansas till we should come up. Accordingly, R. and the muleteers went forward with the wagon and tent, while the captain and his brother, together with Sorel and a trapper named Boisverde, who had joined them, followed with a band of horses. The commencement of the journey was ominous, for the captain was scarcely a mile from Westport, riding along in state at the head of his party, leading his intended buffalo horse by a rope, when a tremendous thunderstorm came on and drenched them all to the skin. They hurried on to reach the place about seven miles off, where R. was to have had the camp in readiness to receive them. But this prudent person, when he saw the storm approaching, had selected a sheltered glade in the woods, where he pitched his tent and was sipping a comfortable cup of coffee while the captain galloped for miles beyond through the rain to look for him. At length the storm cleared away, and the sharp-eyed trapper succeeded in discovering his tent. R. had by this time finished his coffee and was seated on a buffalo robe smoking his pipe. The captain was one of the most easy-tempered men in existence, so he bore his ill-luck with great composure, shared the dregs of the coffee with his brother, and lay down to sleep in his wet clothes. We ourselves had our share of the deluge. We were leading a pair of mules to Kansas when the storm broke. Such sharp and incessant flashes of lightning, such stunning and continuous thunder, I have never known before. The woods were completely obscured by the diagonal sheets of rain that fell with a heavy roar and rose in spray from the ground, and the streams rose so rapidly that we could hardly ford them. At length, looming through the rain, we saw the log-house of Colonel Chick, who received us with his usual bland hospitality, while his wife, who, though a little soured and stiffened by too frequent attendance on camp meetings, was not behind him in hospitable feeling, supplied us with the means of repairing our drenched and bedraggled condition. The storm, clearing away at about sunset, opened a noble prospect from the porch of the colonel's house, which stands upon a high hill. The sun streamed from the breaking clouds upon the swift and angry Missouri and on the immense expanse of luxuriant forest that stretched from its banks back to the distant bluffs. Returning on the next day to Westport, we received a message from the captain who had ridden back to deliver it in person, but finding that we were in Kansas, had entrusted it with an acquaintance of his named Vogel, who kept a small grocery and liquor shop. Whiskey, by the way, circulates more freely in Westport than is altogether safe in a place where every man carries a loaded pistol in his pocket. As we passed this establishment, we saw Vogel's broad German face and knavish-looking eyes thrust from his door. He said he had something to tell us and invited us to take a dram. Neither his liquor nor his message was very palatable. The captain had returned to give us notice that R who assumed the direction of his party, had determined upon another route from that agreed upon between us, and instead of taking the course of the traders, to pass northward by Fort Leavenworth and follow the path marked out by the dragoons in their expedition of last summer. To adopt such a plan without consulting us, we looked upon as a very high-handed proceeding, but, suppressing our dissatisfaction as well as we could, 
we made up our minds to join them at Fort Leavenworth, where they were to wait for us. Accordingly, our preparation being now complete, we attempted one fine morning to commence our journey. The first step was an unfortunate one. No sooner were our animals put in harness than the shaft mule reared and plunged, burst ropes and straps, and nearly flung the cart into the Missouri. Finding her wholly uncontrollable, we exchanged her for another with which we were furnished by our friend Mr. Boone of Westport, a grandson of Daniel Boone, the pioneer. This foretaste of prairie experience was very soon followed by another. Westport was scarcely out of sight when we encountered a deep, muddy gully of a species that afterward became but too familiar to us, and here for the space of an hour or more the car stuck fast. End of chapter 1